I wonder if you've ever had an experience where you've just come to a point in your life of, of near devastation, where just life just kind of comes to a halt, and everything that you thought was going to happen now isn't going to happen, and everything that you uh, were hoping for was kind of dashed. I had an experience like that as a, as a younger man. I, uh, me and my, my wife, we were not dating, but there was, the, there was a significant uh, pressure from the church people who were saying, hey, you guys, should, you, you guys should date. You should do that. And my wife just told me the other day that she was so offended because I was like, no, I, we're not dating. We're not doing that. But it wasn't because I didn't think that she was attractive, and it wasn't because I didn't like her. It was because I had something deep inside of me that was driving me, and it was telling me, it was saying, Matt, you must make something of yourself. You've got to make something of yourself. I don't know where I got this idea. I don't know how it came into my life. But what I knew was this, and what, what I believed was, was this, was that I, I needed to make something of myself before I settled down. And so the, the thing that I knew to do was I just needed to leave town. I found a church to intern at, and I went and did ministry, pulling a little bit of a Jonah by running away from what I felt like God was calling me to, which was an awesome relationship with my future wife. But I didn't, and I went down to California, and I, and I took on this internship, and God really used it in my life. I, I was an intern at a church, and I, I got my feet wet in actually being a part of the, uh, the inner workings of ministry. But as time went on, I realized uh, that this wasn't enough, and I kept kind of going after more and after more, and I kept reaching and striving, and I was trying to, uh, I wanted to be a, a worship leader. I wanted to make something of myself as a worship leader. And so I was, I was going after this, and I was going after it, but what was happening was the guy that I was under, the, my boss, his life was unraveling. And I saw his life unraveling before me, and I saw what was going on as he spent time with a, a woman in our ministry, and he, uh, and, and he was alone with her at times. And I had deep problems with this because I did not believe that this was right as a married man that he would do that. And so I, I, uh, I was very perplexed about this because I had gone to this place to make something of myself. I had gone to, uh, <laughs> down to California to, to kind of be somebody, and here was the guy who was like the, the driver of my dreams, was spinning out his life. And so I had been living in his home, and I had to move out of his house, and I had to, I, I, I had to separate myself because there just was too much going on. Our lives were enmeshed. And then I had to confront him, and I had to say, this is wrong, and I'm done because of what you're doing. I'm not going to be a part of this. And I went home that day, and I laid on my couch, and I've never had anything before or after like this, but I had a heart racing, like, panic attack. I think that's the only thing I can uh, call it. I had this panic attack, and it, it, it perplexed me for, for a long time, but, but the, the, the panic attack was really brought on by this, that everything that I had gone to do 
The thing that I had hung my hopes and dreams on was this internship. It was now gone. It was over. I, and as far as I knew and as far as I could tell, I was not going to be anything because that thing fell through. God was gracious in showing me this. Let's get into the passage. We're in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, we pick up the story about the Tower of Babel. If you remember over the last uh, couple of weeks, we were talking about Noah. And in uh, Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, God gives Noah and his immediate family a command. And the command is this. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That means this. Don't just kind of sit here and get comfortable. My purpose in your life, Noah, and in the, the lives of your, your sons and, and their families is that you would spread out and that you would fill the earth, that you would go and that you would, that you would carry out my plan for this world. He says, be fruitful, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. He says it again at the end of that passage very, uh, in a very similar way. And then last week, what we saw was this, is that you have this guy, Noah, who has this incredible experience with God. He has like amazing time with God. He has to trust God. He is going through a storm like you would not believe, a literal storm. He's going through this storm, and he's hearing from God, and God is saying, walk like this, do this, build this ark, uh, take these animals in, and God, every step of the way, takes care of him. He gets to the end of his life, and it seems like this, like Noah has lost his way because he plants a vineyard, he begins to drink wine, he gets wasted, he ends up uh, buck naked in his tent, and then there's this really weird story, and if you weren't here last week, first of all, why? Come on. Uh, second of all, like you're going to be totally confused when I say this right now, but... Uh, Noah ends up in his tent, drunk and naked, and there's this weird story about Ham, his son, coming in and seeing him going out, telling his brothers, hey, dad's wasted, uh, you should go check it out, and he dishonors his father, is what we believe took place there. He dishonors his father, and as a result, Noah wakes up from his drunken stupor, and he pronounces a prophecy over Ham, and he tells his son, his son's name is Ham, uh, he tells Ham... <laughs> Not over pork or uh, pigs, but over the person, Ham. And he says, he says, your descendants will be cursed. You're going to be a servant to your brothers. Your descendants are going to be a servant to your brother's descendants. So Shem and Japheth. So he pronounces this over them. And so in a few years' time or many years' time, this was going to actually take place. You go on to chapter 10, and chapter 10 in Genesis. I'm explaining this because this matters, by the way. They're not just individual stories. In chapter 10, it begins a genealogy, and the genealogy has many far-reaching things that go throughout, uh, throughout all of Scripture that we won't go into every detail of that. Maybe we'll come back to this passage and say, see, this is how this came about, but we're not going to go into the, those details right now, but you go into a genealogy which is essentially a family tree. And in chapter 10, verse 6, it talks about the sons of Ham. It says the sons of Ham, 
Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabtica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. Very unfortunate name. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. You think he was compensating for something? He, he, he had a lot to get over. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From the land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. That's Nimrod. Now, move on to chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Key words there. Settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. That's tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, that is also a confusing passage. And it's confusing for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, the table of nations, which is chapter 10, is really after chapter 11. Chapter 11 is uh, what happened in order to create all of the nations and all the places that they lived in chapter 10. It's out of order in the scriptures, and it's for a purpose which we won't get into right now. But the, uh, the point is this, is that they, God tells them in chapter 9, verse 1, God tells these people he has conversation with people. We don't know what that looked like, but he tells Noah and his sons he says, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He tells them to fill the earth. But what happens? They settled there. If you look at verse 2, and as God, God's people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. They got settled in one place. So they're kind of being disobedient to God. But why are they being disobedient to God? Well, you got to look at this guy, Nimrod. His name means let's rebel. His grandfather, perhaps if I'm reading this right, is Ham. 
Ham is the one who was cursed. Nimrod is the one who's experiencing the curse. It says that he was a, a, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But one commentator, in fact, many commentators kind of relate that this is not necessarily saying that he is this, he's this mighty hunter, uh, he's this manly man. He's hunting for the Lord or something like that. That's not really what's happening in Nimrod's life. What's going on with Nimrod is that he was a, a mighty hunter before or against the Lord, against Jehovah. He was a hunter in the sense that he was implacable and searching out or persuading men to obey his will, one commentator named Morris says. He's, this guy, Nimrod, had this weight on his life, which was a curse that came uh, from God through Noah to his family. And here he is, and he's experiencing the sins of his fathers. And it's weighing heavily on him, perhaps. We don't know entirely. But it seems as though the family was pushing back against this word from the Lord that said, you're going to be a servant to the house of Shem and to the house of Japheth. And perhaps Nimrod is saying, and his family was saying, no, we will not be servants. We're going to go beyond. And in fact, I think what's actually going on is that Nimrod is compensating for something. He's compensating for the fact that he has been under this pressure, and he says, you know what, forget it. I'm, I'm not going to obey the will of the Lord here. I'm going to rebel, that's what his name means, and I am going to build, and I am going to create, and perhaps he was a, a mighty hunter of men. Maybe he was a, an incredible warrior. Perhaps he was great at hunting uh, these huge beasts that were inevitably in the land at that time. We don't know, but he's against God. This is against God because of this. If you look at what all the things that he did, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then he has kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. He built Nineveh. He built all of these places. What are these places? What is Babel? Babel is the center. It's the origin of paganism in the scriptures. It is against God. Babylon repeatedly throughout scripture is the arch enemy of God. Babylon is opposed to God. It's into astrology and the zodiac and building these temples to these false gods. Babylon represents pantheism. It represents the idea that God is everywhere and in everything. It represents the idea that we see in Romans chapter 1. You don't need to turn there with me, but Romans chapter 1 says this. In chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, right and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Think about what... This passage is saying in the New Testament, it's saying ever since the creation of the world, this is what man has been doing. This is what man has been doing outside of God. 
is that they don't see him as God. They don't recognize his eternal power. And he says, he says this, and the things that have been made ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what Babylon was doing. This is what their heart was after. This is what this city represents. You can, you can look from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And when Babylon comes up, it's in a negative light. It's in a negative light over and over again. And here is this guy, Nimrod. He's got a weight on him of a curse. And it seems as though he has taken the lead. And he said, you know what? I found the way. I found the way, and it is for us to build this city. It's for us to build this city. And then when we build this city, then we'll make a name for ourselves. It, it says that they settled there. They got into this place where they were against God, and they had a settledness about where they were. Is I'm going to go away from God. Look at what it says, where they went from. From the east. In Genesis, a bad omen uh, from the east is a bad omen. It means it's away from God. You can look at it repeatedly. One commentator listed it all out. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, cherubim guarded the entry at the east of the Garden of Eden. When Lot left Abraham, he traveled eastward where he met disaster in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's sons, by his concubine Keturah, were sent away uh, from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Jacob fled his homeland to the land of the people of the east. And here, in this story, the people's eastern migration depicts universal rebellion. It's not that just that they, you can read the story and you can go, why is God so angry? Why does it seem like God's like, hey, you guys all got together, you're going to gang up on me. Like, oh no, I'm in trouble. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, you're directly defying what I had, the word that I had given my creation was to spread out and fill the earth and multiply. But what you did is that you came and you settled, and you settled in a place that's from the east, meaning you're outside of my will. You're not where I want you to be. And so here they are. They're in the east. And they're doing what our secular world tells you and I every single day. Throw off the restraints of your Christianity. Get, get rid of this old stuff. There's this new movie called Smallfoot. That's an incredible piece of propaganda. It's a cartoon that I watched with my children. Most of you may not have watched that. but The whole idea behind it is w there are these, these rules that are written on these uh, pieces of stone. And they applied then, but they don't apply now. It was just used back then to control the people. 
I don't know if you could be any more obvious with the idea that this is against Christianity. Tablets of stone, Ten Commandments, that whole thing. It's throw off the restraints. Leave all of that morality stuff behind of what our ancestors or, what, or the, the people that you grew up with or the church that you were in. Throw it off and go do your own thing because you know what's best. Settle in there outside of God and you will find meaning and purpose. You will make something of yourself. That is the promise. It is also the promise of the first sin in the garden between Adam and Eve and the serpent who is Satan. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat this fruit? How ridiculous is that? Throw off the restraints of the word of God. Throw, throw that away. Don't listen to that. Do your own thing because God knows that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And they look at the fruit and they, they, they ponder it. They, they ruminate over it. It looks like it would be tasty. I think I might want to eat it. And they do. Their eyes are opened. They realize that they're naked and they're sent out of the garden. Because what they chose to do was against God. And here we have bookended at this primeval history, meaning early history of the world, between the first humans and then after the flood and how all of this came to be. And it's bookended with the same story almost in the same way. Why? Because there is no one righteous. There is no one who is unclean. Every single one of us has become a sinner. We are sinners by nature. The world will say, you know what, don't listen to that uh, crap. Don't listen to that stuff. Don't, don't buy into that idea that you're sinful. You're a good person. You're a really good person. You just need to buy into the idea that you are a good person. There are so-called Christian authors, especially in, on, in the women's area, which will give you hogwash after hogwash, selling you lie after lie after lie over and over and over again. Be careful what you read from the Christian bookstore. I would say, don't even buy books from the Christian bookstore. Sorry to the people that I know that own Christian bookstores in the town. But, uh, but you should find the books that people aren't buying because those are typically the ones that we should be reading. Because those are the ones that are not comfortable. Those are the ones that are talking about holiness. Those are the ones that are saying that we should continue to follow God and not settle in to a life of opposition to God. And so here these people are, they're committing the same sin, they're settled in their life, and they're doing the exact thing that they should not be doing. And so it says this, and the Lord came down to, city, to, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Think about what that is. It's a it's what's called an anthropomorphism. And an anthropomorphism is a really big, dumb word that means that God, in a sense, talks about himself as though he is man. He didn't literally like, oh, I guess I'll go down there and take it. Take. No, it's, it's as though God, in his greatness, came down to earth, one commentator says, and gets on his knees and decides to kind of check out this 
puny little tower. In fact, Ashley Brevogel, one of our gals uh, who's been at the church for a long time, her husband is playing bass, and she serves with our youth ministry, said, said this. I heard this secondhand. She said, however big the tower was, it doesn't matter. God still had to come down and look at this thing. God still had to come down and see this thing. And so God is in essence, and by the way, this is kind of poetic. If you look at it in the Hebrew, it rhymes. It's called a chiasm, meaning that verse 1 corresponds to verse 9 and and so on. It kind of comes to this pinnacle where God finally comes down in the middle. And what does he see? He sees this tower that they had built. He sees this city that they had created saying, we're going to be somebody. We're going to become someone because we've done this. Now, it's not just a tower. And many times we have heard, if you were in, you know, uh, Sunday school as a kid, we believe sometimes that the tower was an effort to actually get up to God. Like, they're, they're trying to build this giant tower. But they built it on the plain of Shinar, which is kind of absurd, because if they were trying to get up higher, wouldn't they have started on a mountain? He's like, hey, let's get up several thousand feet up a little bit higher so we can get up there a little quicker, and then maybe we'll find a ladder. And we'll go. That's, that's not what they were doing. Because the, the words that are being used here, when it says in verse 4, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, it's not necessarily saying that we want to get to God. It's saying we want to be known for something. But even more than that, it's saying lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's have a common goal. Let's have a common religion. Remember I said Babel is the center. It's the place of paganism and of uh, the, the worship of creation instead of the creator. It's, it's, it's where all of this stuff came from. And so this tower was most likely a religious center, described as a ziggurat, with signs of the zodiac and things like that, if you're familiar with that. But there would have been places of worship, perhaps, in this. It would have been an, an effort to say, we're going to build something other than the true and living God. We're creating a religious center so that all of us become unified in our rebellion against God. And so we've created this center. We've created this tower. This is what we're doing. And God comes down and he sees it and he knows that this is a problem. And he says, behold, there are one people. And you can read this and you can say, you know, uh, why would God be opposed to people being unified? It's not that God is, is opposed to them being unified. It's that he's opposed to them destroying themselves in one unified person, in one unified place, through Nimrod, who is a true Nimrod now, because he's against God. And God is saying, this can only lead to further destruction. Do you see this in the scriptures? If you've been here for the series... What you see is God's intervention, humanity, at first Adam and Eve, and then God comes walking in the cool of the day, and he says, Adam, where are you? God intervenes. 
He removes the tree of life because now there's just pain and suffering and they should not live forever in the midst of pain and suffering. God has created a new way. God intervenes in chapter 3, verse 15 when he says uh, the seed of the woman is going to to come about and this seed of the woman, uh, he intimates, is going to be the Savior. You see God intervening in the life of Noah and the world at that time as these Nephilim, these figures in Genesis that we don't really understand, became mighty men of valor. In the same way, in the same words that are used for Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. These same people are against God. And God intervenes and he says, I am wiping them out because this is disastrous for these people, for my creation. I have to restart things, as it were. And then Noah goes along. And then these people go to the the place of Shinar, the plain of Shinar. And they build a temple. And here they are again, totally walking away from God, settled in, saying, I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to build this tower and we're going to do it. And God says, I'm intervening because it only leads to destruction for God's people. It does not fulfill my word for these people in this place and in this time. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He says, they're just going to go on from here and it's going to become more evil upon more evil upon more evil. What's he do? He intervenes. Let's confuse their language. We don't know if he started new languages. It seems like he did. But maybe they just were babbling. In the city, the name uh, Babel means uh, the gate of God. It goes from being the gate of God. That's another reason why we would say that this was religiously based, that Nimrod was setting up an alternate religion from God, is that the name of the city would have been the gate of God. God turns it into a word for confusion. God turns it into, this is just confusion. As you try to align yourself against the true and the living God, you end up with confusion. And as I laid on my couch, and I sat there, and I had my panic attack, I experienced confusion. I experienced confusion because God was gracious enough to let me stop building my tower, to force me out of the tower building business that I was in. There's three things that come out of this that I really want you to see. There is first the fear of being anonymous. The fear of, of, of not being known. Secondly, we all build towers. Everyone here builds a tower. We're all building something. We're all prone to ridiculous tower building. 
trying to make something of ourselves. The third thing is that there is joy being in being known by the one true God. The fear of being anonymous, number one. Number two, we all build towers. And three, we've got to know the joy of being known by the one true God. First, the fear of being anonymous. I remember feeling this for the first time when I walked into the cafeteria as a junior high student. I was new in town. And I, and I walk in and I go, I don't know anybody. Do you remember that feeling? Junior high, high school? Who am I going to sit with? Oh my gosh. And then you try to, try to find somebody, anybody who's sitting by themselves. And you go, I, I, I guess I'll sit here and hope that they don't, ah, that's saved. Something like that. I was that guy. I was like, I was so fearful. And the fear was, I'm fearful of being anonymous. Think about the things that you and I will do to never feel that way again. The ways that we'll respond in our personalities. It may be that you're super outgoing and you're like, that's never happening to me again because I'm going to go meet everybody in the school and I'm, and I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to become the socialite. Or you might cower in the corner. You will find a, a janitor's closet to eat luncheon because you're like, I'm never experiencing that again. Think about how that shapes you as a person. Think about what that does to you. The fear of being anonymous. The fear of being anonymous drives us as we come into uh, perhaps college or as we're about to end our, our high school career. As we're trying to decide and what's my major, what's the thing that I'm going to do, how, how am I going to be known? It's the fear of, of feeling like, how will anybody know that I exist? How will anybody see that I matter in this world? And what incredible major will I take at school in order for me to be successful, to be known in some way, to make my life matter, to decide that this, this is going to cause me to feel like I matter. If I have the right major, think about the pressure and the fear and everything that comes with that. How many college students numb that fear with substance abuse or sexual exploits or self-harm in some way? Think about that fear, the fear of, we've, I've got to make something of myself, and the world says that this is the place to do it. This is the place that I've got to be. What am I going to do with my life? No one knows that I exist. It's the fear of being anonymous. It may be towards the end of the college life, the college experience. And the clock is ticking because you ain't got your ring by spring yet, Right? And you're, and you're thinking, I, 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 I got to hook up with someone. Oh, my gosh. Like, I'm going back to Sayo. I, there's nobody of the opposite sex there. Sorry, Sayo-ians. Uh, I'm going back to that place. I'm going to be, I'm not going to be around all these people. 
and I'm not going to have this. It's the fear of being anonymous because your fear is based in the fact I am no one if I don't have someone forever in a relationship. And then it goes on from there. As you move beyond college and perhaps you haven't been married yet and you're, and you're single and you're still saying like, hey, I, I'm, it hasn't happened yet. And I feel like I'm an anonymous person because everyone else who's married feels like, they, like I'm a second-class citizen because they have real lives to live. And by the way, that's a lie that we all believe at times. Or you may be like me during that time where it's like, I'm not, hooked, I'm not, I'm not settling down until I have made something of myself. Until I've built a life, until, I've, until I have become known for something, I'm not going to be dependent on, on a, a woman to do that for me. Forgive me for saying that. That's the reality of what I thought. And so, you know what I began to do? I began to build a tower. I began to build a tower, and perhaps you got married. And you came alongside of your wife or your husband and you said, hey, let's go build a tower together. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's do this thing. Let's, let's make it happen together. I've performed quite a few weddings and even the Christian ones. We're, we're still kind of blinded like, hey, we're going to go on this. We're going to build this crazy life and it's going to be awesome. But I got to tell you that oftentimes it really is about tower building. It's settling on the plain of Shinar in the east, away from the will of God, and we do it unknowingly. We do it unwittingly. We say, we're going to build this tower together, but sometimes we'll make it religious, and we'll say, hey God, we have this amazing tower that we want to build, and we want you to bless this tower, and would you build this tower, and would you make it happen for us, because we want to build this tower. And then we wonder, what, God, why did you allow all of these things to happen? Our tower got dashed. My marriage fell apart. My business fell apart. All of these things happened. And God says, because I'm not in the, the business of building your tower. I'm not in the business of making you somebody or something through your own efforts and through you tr trying to provide for yourself. And sometimes we try to build the tower of, I matter, I'm not anonymous because I do good works and I go to church. And because I've been a good person and we build a tower of self-aggrandizement that says, I've been a good person, I've done what is right, and God says, that is a tower of lies. You sit on a throne of lies, as what's his face would say. We are all in the tower building business. What's devastating you? What's causing, what's causing devastation right now? Where's the tower in that? Where's the name for yourself that you've tried to create? Did you know that God's blessing comes? Oftentimes, when it ends in confusion, and sometimes even absolutely painfully when devastation comes. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced deep and penetrating loss. I can't speak for God in that situation. 
I can't say that you are sitting there sinfully doing whatever you want, but I can say this, that God is gracious when he allows us to go through great loss. We are all in the tower building business. What is that for you? The way that we have to get at that is we have to look at our fears. I think all, as I read through this over and over and over and over again, I was trying to find the connect, connecting piece between those people and me, those people and us. Like, what, what do we have? And for me, it really is that story of my panic attack in California. But it's not just that. It's ongoing. It wasn't a panic attack later on in life, but several years ago I came to this point where I thought that I was right with God and I thought that I was in this place where I was doing the things that I was doing as a pastor for all the right reasons. But then all of my motivation dropped out from underneath me. It was though I was riding this incredible wave of energy and passion for building God, Jesus' church and I was doing, and I was doing this, and it was going awesome until I realized that I had set some goals in my life. I, ha I had some artificial numbers in my mind that said that I needed to be at this number, at this place, and we needed to be organized on this level, and this amount of money needed to be coming in. Like all of these superficial, ugly things that we hate to even hear about or talk about as people in the ministry. But I got to admit that I had to come to this point where I realized that even in the midst of building a church, even in the midst of thinking that I had done what God had called me to do, and I believe that I was, but I still had the motivations of somebody who was saying, I'm trying to make a name for myself. I still had the motivations of that. And I, and I looked around, like, what are the ways that this manifests itself? Am I recognized? What's my social media platform look like? Am I building a platform as a pastor? Because that seems like what I should be doing. That seems like what I should be. Like, people should look at me and they should say, man, I just really need you to work in my life and I need you to really be God to me. And I was trying to supersede the place of God and I looked at myself and I said, I, I feel like I'm anonymous, like I'm unknown, like I don't know what's going on here. And all I felt was confusion. And every bit of motivation that I had that I believe God used to start a great church was taken out from underneath me. And God decided, I believe, in that moment to say, Matt, you will not serve the same from this point. You will not keep going in this way. You will not keep going with these false and idolatrous tower-building measures that you have, thinking that you're going to make a name for yourself outside of who I am. And God slowly but surely re-implanted in me true and real desires because on some level I didn't really know who this God was not entirely but in some ways I didn't know this God I didn't I didn't know what was going on with him I didn't understand how much he knows me in the Psalms it says 
that he knit me together in my mother's womb. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows every detail of your life. He knows what you struggle with. He knows what your strengths are. He knows what is happening with you. And he knows every part of who you are. It's not that he doesn't know you. He knows you intricately. So what is the problem? What is the issue? It's not that he doesn't know us. It's not that we are unknown. It's that we don't know him. It's not that, it's not that I, I'm unknown by the true and the living God. It's that I don't really know who he is. My identity is not found in the king, the true king. My identity is found in what I do so often wrongly. My identity is found in the relationships that I have. My identity is found in the business that I have. My identity is found in the personality that I've taken on in order to be liked. My identity is found in my marriage. My identity is found in whatever it is. You insert your thing. My identity is found in that. And the problem with that is this, is that as long as you believe that you need to find your identity, even in Christian ministry, even in doing things for God, as long as your identity is found in that, it's a lie. It's not true. It's just tower building because you and I are trying to make a name for ourselves. And what has exacerbated that issue is the proliferation of social media today. And I believe that social media is the cause of so much anxiety, so much stress, because it speaks to this human core need, which is I need to make something of myself. And if I don't feel that, and I've been given the drug a couple times because people liked my post, or I, I you know, that person liked who I was, or I have the right friends through that medium. But you got a taste, and you lost it. Or, or, or you got a taste and you got more of it. Your identity. Your joy doesn't come by being known by the true and the living God. Your identity comes from being known by the people on social media. By the people who know about your business. By the friends that you have because you're married. Or by the friends that you don't have because you're not married. Your identity, identity has been described. Your identity has been detailed. It has been stamped on you by everything else. And you've tried to make a name for yourself. And I've tried to make a name for myself through anything but the true and the living God, who's the only one who truly knows me. And the crazy thing is, is that when I know the true and the living God, what happens is this. I rest not in the fear of being unknown, but in the glorious understanding that I am truly known. I have to take you to Ephesians. I want you to turn there.
Who is God? Who am I? And how do I relate to him? That's what you need to answer. Who is God? Who am I? And how do I relate to him? You need to read the first chapter of Ephesians. I am so passionate about this portion of scripture. I could explode every time I read it. Because if you know something about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing here and he's exclaiming. In fact, I think it's the first 14 verses. I may have this wrong. It's a lot of verses. Like uh, a good portion of the first chapter is all one sentence. He doesn't take a breath. I like it better in the NIV. But I'll read it out of the ESV because I don't have the NIV with me. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First of all, who are you? You are God's creation who has blessed you in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Who is he? He's the one who exists before the foundations of the world, who creates all things, and he's the one who knows you intricately. He's passionate about you. He knows you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. If you're a believer today, he has chosen you. You say, no, I believed. I walked an aisle. I did that. I don't believe in that. Well, argue with Ephesians chapter 1. I don't care. God chose you before you even knew about him, before you were even an inkling in your parents' eyes, before anything took place. God chose you. Who are you? You are this beautiful creation that God has chosen if you are his. He says this even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Who is he? He's the one who has determined what would happen with your life. He's ordained, not just that you would come to him, but that he would send the measure by which you would come to him through Jesus Christ. I could preach a really long sermon right now. Like, we, we're starting another one right now. I'm sorry, I ended the last one about five minutes ago. I started a new one, and this is where we're at. That one was kind of hopeless. We suck. We're, we're doing our own thing. We're building towers. Here's a new one. God knows you. He loves you. He has adopted you. He has predestined you. Who is God? He's amazing. You can clap for that. Let's clap for Jesus. We could go on and on and on, my friends. I can't. I don't have the time. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Again, a passionate section of Scripture. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, do you see the dash after Gentiles? Paul started a statement and he goes, oh, oh, wait a minute, I forgot something. And he says, assuming that you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known. And he goes off on an aside. 
And he's just, look at how passionate he is. Are you that passionate about God and what he's done for you? Who is God? He's passionate about you. Who are you? Paul says, this is what I want you to know about who you are. He, and he gets sidetracked in verse 2. He comes back to it uh, 12 verses later in verse 14. He says, for this reason. He repeats that phrase. For this reason. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I'm talking, who is this God? It's that Father. It's the King of kings. It's the Lord of lords. It's the one who's in control. He's sovereign. He's over all things. He created all things. He created you. He created me. Everything is named after him because he's the one who started everything. He's the one that's decided. That's the one that we're talking to. Who is God? It's that God. It's him. Now he says this. He says from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being. Stop right there for a second. That you would have this uncommon, this spiritual power, that you'd be strengthened by him, that you would experience in your inner being, in your personality, in your mind, in your heart, in your emotions that you would experience as God. You're walking into the lunchroom. Who am I going to sit with? Who am I going to be with? That fear, that thing that has power over you, that is still plaguing you today with your business, with your marriage, with your lack of marriage, that thing. Paul is saying, I want you to know. I want... I want God to grant you this power in your inner being. I want your, your emotions to be impacted. I want your life to be impacted. I want your spirituality to be impacted. So that, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's not just that Christ, that you would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I walked to the aisle. I prayed a prayer. I did something like that. But that Christ would live in you, that he'd dwell in you. It's not that just that you kind of know him. It's that he's dwelling in you, that he's a part of you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. To comprehend. What's comprehend mean? It means to know with all the saints, with everybody else at the church, with the, the, the universal church. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ. That you would know the love of Christ. That you'd comprehend with all the saints. That you would see how big and how wide and how long and how high and how deep and that you wouldn't just kind of know this like yeah I know Jesus loves me I sang the song I don't but I don't really believe it because I'm building towers and I'm and I and I still really have this emptiness in me and that you'd know this love of Christ that is beyond even knowing that you may be filled with all the fullness of God ah that's exhausting almost because it's just like, ah, oh, do I know him in this way? Who is God? 
He's this amazing, amazing creator God. Who am I? The one that is loved by this incredible God. And when I know, when I see, when I experience how great his love is, you know what happens? Oh, watch out. Watch out. Because when I'm not driven by the fear that I'm not going to make something of myself, then I don't build towers that are devoted to other gods, like my comfort, my security, my control, my power. When I see the love of the Father in that way through Jesus Christ, that's life-changing. That's world-changing. That's what God can do in your life. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, and you may be saying, I do not have that. I do not have relationship with God. I have not had an experience in that way. I see that I've just been fearful for my entire life. And I've just been fearful that I have not made something of myself. My friend, you must receive Jesus Christ by faith today. Jesus Christ came as God incarnate. God comes down to earth as a baby. He lives a perfect life. And even though he lived a perfect life, he determined by the will of the Father that he would go to the cross. But he didn't go to the cross for any stupid reason, not just as an example or anything like that. He went to the cross for you and for me. It is there for the taking. Do you want it? God already gave it to you. It's already there. You must receive by faith. Is that confusing? It should be. Receive it by faith. Receive Jesus Christ by faith. Now, what do you do? You tell someone. There's going to be people praying by, by there. We talk after service. You write it on a connection card. You tell someone, and then you don't just sit with that and you say, okay, I think I'll accept this thing. No, you involve yourself in the local church. You become a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not because you made a decision one day that you want to follow Jesus that you begin to walk with him. It's because you make daily decisions. You make hourly. You make moment-by-moment decisions to walk with Jesus. Not because you lose your salvation, but because you prove the fact that you ever received him in the first place. That is how you come to know Jesus. I implore you to receive him today. Let's pray. Lord God, the fear of being anonymous, the fear of being unknown has had its grip on me more times than I can count. Lord, I need your help. I need to constantly be reminded of this. And so, Lord, I'm praying this morning and today that you would enable us to see where we've been so fearful, that you'd enable us to see what tower we are building. And Lord God, that we would turn to you in faith instead of in our own abilities. Lord God, would we turn to you in faith instead of the towers that we've built. Lord, that we turn to you in faith, that we trust in you, that you have made something of us, that you are glorious, that you are good, that you are the one who gives us a name. 
you identify yourself with us. So Lord, we ask for that. Lord, I pray for those that have not received you yet. Lord, may they be bold and receive you by faith this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.